Hi, this is Tanya, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and this is our Sunday sermon. This is the final Sunday of October, October 30th. So excited to be with you. Thank you for taking time to join me today. And welcome again to our series, Prayer That Touches Heaven. Last Sunday, we started by examining Jesus' very own prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. As a whole, we looked at what made that prayer effective, and in fact, what made all of Jesus' prayers so effective. And the answer was that Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was not a prayer of hopelessness and defeat. It was a prayer of surrender to his Father's will. And in that surrender, Jesus found the strength to overcome. Today, we're going to look at the second part of this series, and we're going to talk about prayer that gets God's attention. And to do that, we'll look at Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, found in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6 to 21. But before we do that, let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious God and Father, Lord, indeed, let your will be done during this time together today. Let us hear from you clearly, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. There was a businessman who was troubled about an important upcoming deal for his company, so he went to church to pray for God to help him. By chance, he knelt down next to a man who was praying for $100 to pay an urgent debt. When he overheard the poor man's prayer, the businessman took out his wallet and pressed $100 into the other man's hand. Overjoyed, the man got up and left the church. The businessman then closed his eyes and prayed, And now, Lord, that I have your undivided attention, well, you get the picture. When I pray, I want God's attention. I want to feel that God is there and that he's listening. But there are people who've told me that they weren't quite sure if God was listening to them at all. They've described their feeling as if their prayers have never even made it past the ceiling. Have you ever felt that way? Now, we know we shouldn't have to worry about God paying attention to our prayers. He loves us, and he listens to our prayers. But why? Because he cares for us, right? All of our prayers are important to God, but today I want to introduce you to a way of praying that is guaranteed to get God's attention more than any other kind of prayer. What kind of prayer would accomplish that? What kind of prayer would absolutely get God's interest? Well, it's recorded right here in our scripture, Ephesians chapter 3. Let's dive in. Let's look at Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 11. Paul writes, Just think, though I did not deserve it, and though I am the least deserving Christian there is, I was chosen for this special joy of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then look at verses 14 and 15. Paul continues, when I think of the wisdom and scope of God's plan, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. What Paul is saying is this. The reason I'm praying this particular prayer is because God has a goal. God has an agenda. He wants everyone to know the riches that can be found in Christ and 
He wants that mystery of his salvation to be so plain and so obvious that others will understand it and want what we Christians have. Folks, that's what God wants, and Paul is praying a prayer focused on achieving that objective. Everything in Paul's short prayer concentrates on God's goal, God's agenda. But you say, wait a minute, Pastor, I thought you were going to talk to me about my prayers, about the things that I want when I pray. Well, I am. When you're in a conversation with someone and you want to get their attention, what should you talk to them about? What will get them interested in what you have to say? The answer is fairly simple. You talk to them about the things that they care about. You talk about their kids, their grandkids, their spouse, their job, their home, and the list goes on and on. That will get someone to pay attention to you faster than anything else that you can possibly do because there's one common thought, and that's that people love to talk about themselves. And in fact, they really do. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33 that our relationship with God works much the same way. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The Message Bible reads it this way. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. In other words, if our lives and our prayers are focused on seeking God's kingdom first, then we'll get God's attention. And when we get his attention, then he promises he will give us what we need. Again, Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Even Jesus prayed that way. Do you remember the night Jesus was betrayed? We talked about it last Sunday. He prayed three times that God would remove the cup of his suffering, the cup of his impending crucifixion. But each time Jesus ended his prayer with one very important phrase, this was the key we ended with the first sermon. Do you remember what Jesus did? Do you remember how he ended his prayer? That's right. He said in Luke 22:42, Yet I want your will, God, not mine. So when Paul prays this prayer in Ephesians 3, he's asking for God's will to be done. He's praying for something he knows God wants done. And that is, God wants everyone to know how wonderful Jesus is and God wants that message to be so plain and so obvious that others will understand it and want it for themselves. So what does Paul pray for? What can he pray for that will make God's message powerful and vocal and appealing to the world? Well, he prays for the church. Paul prays for the local congregation at Ephesus. Look with me at Ephesians 3, verses 16 through 18. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will give you mighty inner strength through his Holy Spirit. And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you trust in him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. As I was studying for this sermon, I thought that it was intriguing Paul prayed for the church. I mean, I do that all the time myself. But what would the church at Ephesus have to do with Paul's overall objective? What effect would a single church have on what God had set Paul aside to do for the kingdom? I mean, Paul was a world-traveling evangelist, a persuasive preacher, and he had started a number of congregations by that time. Ephesus is just one local church. What difference could they make in accomplishing what God wanted Paul to do? Well, they could make all the difference in the world. You see, the local church is the face of God to the world. 
when the world looks to the church, they're looking to that body of believers as God's representatives. Let's say that you're in the market to buy a new car. A rich relative has passed away and has willed you several million dollars. And now you have all that money. You figured it was time that you get yourself a new vehicle, the vehicle you've always wanted. You go down to the local car dealer, you kick a few tires, you buy and drive away with the car of your dreams. But a few days later, you start to experience some problems. The car needs some work. The engine's running rough or there's a shutter in the chassis as you drive down the road. You figure it should be under warranty, so you take it back to the dealership. But once you get there, you find that the workers are rude and the customer service is just not customer service friendly at all. The shop is dirty, the mechanics are rough on your car. It seems like they can't even figure out how to fix your car. On top of that, it appears they have no intention of honoring the warranty that you thought covered the car to begin with. They expect you, in fact, to pay for all the repairs up front. Now, how would you respond to that kind of treatment? I might call the Better Business Bureau, quite frankly, or I might call a lawyer. But one thing is for sure, I would not go back to them to buy another car. And there are some people who would not only not go back to that dealership, but they would never buy the brand of car again. It's a kind of guilt by association thing. Now, what was the problem with that dealership? The problem wasn't that they couldn't sell cars. They could do that. They sold one to you. Their problem was that the workers forgot why their company existed. They thought the company existed for their comfort. They thought that once the car was sold, it didn't matter how they treated the customer. And because they thought those things, they lost clients. People would stay away from that dealership by the droves. The workers had gained a bad reputation for their company and even for the car they sold. And the company would most definitely fail if those workers kept that up. The same problem can happen to a church, beloved. A church can forget why it exists. A church can get to thinking that it's all about their comfort level. A church can forget that their primary job is to, number one, make disciples of their friends, neighbors, and relatives. Number two, baptize new people into Christ. And number three, teach those new believers how to live strong lives for Christ. A church that forgets these things will go and fail. And not only will they fail, they'll tarnish God's reputation because they're the face of God to the world. I once heard a preacher talk about a Professor Nash, a longtime Bible and ministry professor at Kentucky Christian College. Apparently, Nash once visited the home of a family and he talked to them about joining the church. As was his custom, when he got out of his car, he went around the car to open the door for his wife and walked with her to the door of the family's home. Over 30 years later, the once teenaged son of that family brought his son to Kentucky Christian College to enroll that boy so that he could one day be a preacher. Why had he brought his son to KCC? Because he had seen Nash open the door for his wife and was convinced that this man was a man he could trust because he had shown that he was a nice man by his treatment of his wife. That man sought out KCC because of how he saw one man treat his wife. He trusted the college because he'd learned to trust one of their professors, and he trusted that professor because he watched what that man had done. The world looks to see how we treat our spouses. They look to see how we treat our coworkers. They look to see how we treat our friends. They look to see even how we treat our enemies. They watch us because they want to see if Jesus has really made a difference in our lives. If they see that we don't treat others any different than the world would, then they reason they don't need what we've got. 
We are the messengers, beloved, hear me. We are the messengers of Christ, and we show by our conduct whether or not Jesus has made any difference in our lives. Now, back to the prayer. I found it interesting that Paul didn't lecture the church about what they were supposed to do. He just prayed for them. And Paul prayed three things for that church. Here they are. Take a look at verse 16. He prayed that God will strengthen them by his spirit. And then in verse 17, he prayed that Christ will dwell in their hearts by faith. And finally, in verse 18, he prayed that they be rooted and established in love. So why? Why would Paul pray for this? Why not just simply tell the church to do it? Well, two reasons occurred to me, and they kind of overlap. First, Paul prays for God to do this for the church because he realizes the church is not designed to operate as purely a social organization. A church can exist and it can survive without God's direct involvement, but it cannot thrive and fulfill its mission. The church was not designed to run merely on its own strength, on its own efforts or abilities. If it could survive on its own, the sign up by the road would read, the church of human endeavor, or the church of the wealthy and strong, or the church of the highly successful. In order for a church to be everything God intended it to be, it must have God's spirit empowering it, and it must have Christ's presence surrounding it and running through it. Secondly, if a church tries to go it alone without praying for God's presence and power, then that congregation runs the risk of having all kinds of problems. Galatians 5 verses 19 to 21 tell us that when the spirit is not present in a church, then you're likely to have, starting in verse 19, sexual immorality, impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, participation in demonic activities, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, divisions, the feeling that everyone is wrong except those in your little group, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other kinds of sin. Let me tell you again, Paul said, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now you might say, well, Tim, come on, man, get real. You don't expect me to believe that, do you? You don't expect us to believe that just because a church is self-sufficient and doesn't really rely on God as much as it should, that they'd have problems like that, do you? And I would answer you, absolutely. Yes, I do. I expect you to believe it because I know it's happened before. In fact, I know of a church that a long time ago was a really large and powerful congregation of faith. They had at least 600 people in attendance every Sunday, and they had a radio broadcast across the United States. It was the in-church to go to. They had doctors and lawyers, politicians and judges. Anybody who was anybody went to this church. They had power, they had wealth, they had influence, and they relied on those things way too much, far more than God. One of the men in that congregation was a very wealthy individual who tithed generously to the church. Whenever there was a financial shortfall, he'd make up the difference. And because he was powerful and because he was wealthy and because he was so generous to the church, they made him an elder. But one day it became known that this elder was an adulterer. That sort of sin is hard to keep a secret for long. And when the preacher found out about those indiscretions, he forced the man to resign his position. Now, I'm not sure if it was because the preacher's decision was unpopular in the church or not, but a couple of years later, that preacher resigned and moved on. And when that preacher moved on, the elder was reinstated because he was a wealthy and influential man. But he wasn't repentant. 
he wasn't sorry for what he had done. About five years later, that large, powerful, and wealthy congregation began having financial difficulties. They were running in the red, and they couldn't understand why. When they investigated, they found that the deacon who counted the offerings was cooking the books and skimming off the money for himself. There was an ugly smell of scandal in the air. What are they to do? Well, the elder who'd been disciplined and reinstated, he went out to that deacon's home and he burned the books. This is true story, folks. Two years later, that congregation split and the new church that formed as a result refused to have elders in their church for the next 20 years. Well, I'm not surprised based on that. When the Spirit of God does not rule in a church, when the authority of Jesus Christ is not present in a congregation, there will be a fertile ground for all kinds of sexual immorality, impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, participation in demonic activities, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, divisions, the feeling that everyone is wrong except for those in your little group, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other kinds of sin. Again, Galatians 5, 19 to 21. And whenever you see those characteristics show up in a church, you know the Spirit of God and the presence of Jesus isn't there. It doesn't have to be sexual immorality or financial misappropriations that indicate that kind of trouble. It could simply be a group of people who come to church and sit with their arms folded in anger, partisan divisions in the church family, or political maneuverings to gain one's own way in church decisions. Any of those characteristics could be a sign of God's Spirit not being in control of that body of believers. Folks, that's why the church needs to pray like Paul prayed. And that's why I want us as a congregation and any of you who have joined us via this social media platform to pray for our congregation and for your own. And not just today. I want you to pray throughout the coming week. Here's three things that I want you to pray for, for our church at Word of Hope and for yours as well. First, I want you to pray that God will strengthen our church by his Holy Spirit. Number two, praying that Christ will dwell in this church and in our hearts by faith. And lastly, I want you to pray that you will be rooted and established in love. That's what God wants, folks. The Apostle Paul is praying a prayer focused on achieving those objectives. You want to pray in a way that gets God's attention? Then quite simply, concentrate on God's goal, God's agenda, and you will never, ever go wrong. To God be the glory, and all his people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.